Hi, I'm Sarah Kavanaugh, and this is Peaceful Exit. Every episode, we explore death, dying, and grief through stories by authors familiar with the topic. Writers are our translators. They take what is inexpressible, impossible to explain, and they translate it into words on a page. My guest today is Reverend Deborah L. Johnson, known to many as Rev D. She's the founding minister and president of Inner Light Ministries, an omni-faith outreach ministry that she started over 20 years ago. She's also the author of two books, The Sacred Yes and Your Deepest Intent. I'm so looking forward to talking to Rev D about her spiritual perspective on death and about her ministry, especially her extensive hospice experience. such a pleasure to meet you. It's such a pleasure to meet you. I'd love to know how you became a minister. I had gotten the call to ministry very early at the age of 15. And um, it was rather traumatic, uh, particularly from the standpoint that I was raised as a very fundamentalist, evangelical, charismatic Pentecostal and quite gay. I'm 15 years old. I'm in my senior year in high school. It is the youth convocation event for the denomination that I grew up in, which is called the Church of God in Christ, which is the largest Black denomination in the world. So the amount of arguing and daily fighting that was going on at my home about me being gay was just unbearable. My mother was sure that I was going to go to hell and that God was going to hold her responsible for me being gay because I was a minor and she wasn't going to hell. So I just was so just frustrated. And they have what they call altar calls, where if you want prayer, you just go up. Yeah. So it was an altar call. And some force, something hit me on my chest and up underneath my knees simultaneously. And bam, I am on the floor, face up. And I am speaking a language. I still don't know what it was or what I was saying, but I was speaking in tongues. And my mother was standing right there. My next memory was being in the restaurant at the hotel and saying to her, I'm supposed to be a minister. So everybody thought that this was the sign that God was going to turn me straight. And it was like, well, you're going to have to come up with another plan for my life (laughs) because that one's not going to work. (laughs) So I made this promise Uh, that by the time that I turned uh, 40, that I would do something about it. So in the interim, I studied other things and I Mm -hmm. got into the new thought movement, became more of a metaphysician, became a lay minister and finally went, finished ministerial school. And literally the day before I turned 40, I started the vision a core for the ministry that I've now had for 27 years called Inner Light. So can you define what omni-faith is? Yes. Omni-faith is actually a word that 
was coined by some of my ministerial students. And essentially, it is meant to mean omni, which is sort of above and beyond any particular kind of faith tradition, but about the essence and the substance of faith itself. Mm. Because not all faith comes out of what we call traditional religions. I'm I'm excited to talk to you about Peaceful Exit because we've really approached uh, death from a lot of angles. And mm-hmm. you believe it's a sacred time like I do. Yes. And I, I'm curious about what formed your views of death. Well, my views of death have evolved through the years. Um, I would say they first probably started getting informed by actually watching people and witnessing people making their transitions. I come from a pretty large extended family. I mean, literally, I've watched three whole generations leave, the last of which was my mom a year ago at 96 was the last of her generation. So I'd say those were probably my earliest. And then as I became a lay minister and got into spiritual counseling Mm -hmm. and was actually involved more in the process of people who were at end of life, going to hospitals, working with them in hospice, uh, with their families, even presiding over their ceremonies or whatnot afterwards, I started getting up close and personal with the actual journey mm-hmm. of the individuals in process, which I have been doing um, for decades now. And my ministry has a very close working relationship with the local hospitals and the local um, hospice organizations. You have all this experience being with people at the very end of their life. And then your mom passes away a year ago at age 96. You can have all this experience, but it's still very personal when it's your own mom. How was that for you? Yes. So my mom passed away in uh, the family home. And I'm very pleased that she was able to do that. She's They lived there since I was six months old. And uh, she was fortunate enough to have caregivers, you know, who were there with her and family members. Um, During the last days of her life, she withered, I guess is what I would call it. She wasn't sick. She wasn't ailing from anything. But just slowly but surely, the system started to shut down. But one of the things that I find really remarkable about her journey was how much time she spent courting what I call the other side for at least two years, maybe even more than that. And during her last, I guess, week, two weeks or so of that, that really, really intensified. And sometimes it kind of got comical to me in terms of her drawing me into those conversations and (laughs) the discussions that we were having about them. Uh, But she managed to hang in there like nothing I have ever seen for about five or six days with no food, no water, 
And for me, perhaps the most traumatic part was watching her those last 10 hours or so with the laborious breath. Yeah. And making that hard decision to not give her the oxygen that was right there because she was so ready to go. She was done with still being here. And not everybody can do that. And my brother and I both agree that he's very glad that I was the one at those moments. Um, But they're really, that's, that's sacred time. That is sacred time. Did you sing? Yes. And one thing that I always appreciated with her is that even when she was not particularly respondent to people, not that she didn't hear, she just like didn't <laughs> didn't want to care to talk. But whenever there was music, you know, like the hymns, she would always sing along. And that used to be part of my time with her, is I would just do a medley, you know, particularly the choruses that are easy to do, just one after another after another. And she never skipped a beat. Even if she was just kind of mouthing it because she didn't have enough breath to sing, she knew all of her favorite church hymns. So she was singing right till the end. She was singing them right until the end. Yes. Awesome. Let's talk about hospice. Mm-hmm. What role do you play in terms of how you have shown up in that world? Well, on several different fronts. Formally as a ministry, we have pastoral care program. And this thing that I'm talking about now, like singing, is one of the things my ministry would do. Mm-hmm. And we would get called in and we would send teams of people to convalescent homes or to hospitals or, or, to, or to private residences, and they would sing. You know, they're very well trained and looking at the breath rhythms and what kinds of chords and what sort of melodies and sounds, you know, would be the most soothing. So helping to usher people to the other side through singing is, is, is one way. Mm-hmm. The other thing that I do with hospice is I really work with them in terms of getting through to the patient. Mm-hmm. If there's any resistances or if they need to talk things over, you know, work things through, resolve things with folks, because that can sometimes be an issue. You mean relational? Yes. Yeah. Yes. And a lot of times people don't think of it this way, but sometimes the biggest problems that hospice has isn't with the patient at all, but it's with their family. Mm-hmm. And all of the drama And the chaos and the confusion and whatever, the anger, the resentment, the grief, like all of these things that people don't know how to process and handle. So sometimes I play referee and interference, um, babysit (laughs) the relatives sometimes so that they can, so that they can do their job. Uh, Similarly, sometimes with the hospitals. So similar to a death midwife, almost, you're, yes. you're there with the family, you're there with the patient. Yes. 
and you're you're kind of a liaison between the hospice and the patient, if you will. Is that right? Or yes, yeah, yes. Yeah. And and if it happens to be like at that last moment mm-hmm. or those last moments, you know, I'm there. Yeah. I'm in prayer. I'm in vigil. I'm holding their hands. I'm talking to them. Whatever it's going to take to help them make that transition. I'm also the first one that gets called if I'm not actually there at the moment of the last breath. I come before the morticians get there. You know, I'm, I'm there with the family or whomever and you know, the remains or, or the body with whatever sort of closure, ritual, ceremony, whatever it is that we have to do. Because that's a pretty tough thing to, yes. to watch your loved one go out in a body bag. Some people adorn the body and wash it and cleanse it and, and have, you know, a, a wake. Yeah. And, you know, have people over and, yep. you know, and they chat and tell stories and eat food and, and all of the rest of that. It kind of goes the, the, the whole gamut in terms of how I might be involved. Is there any specific story that has stuck with you? Well, what I can say is that if you're willing to give up the idea of people being dead, you can still have the most extraordinary relationship with them. That the last breath is not the end. I I can't say exactly what happens or how, but people get wiser. They get smarter. They see things that they couldn't see before. And a lot of issues get more resolved on the other side. You said something about people come to sing and they're very Mm -hmm. intentional about the rhythm. Is it the rhythm of the dying person's breathing that you're mimicking? Or what is it about the music that you're intentional about when you are hospicing someone who's transitioning? If you think of, they almost look like discs or saucers, these kind of drums you can play with your fingers or mallets. The round, yes, I know what you're talking yes. about. And, and each of them is like in their own key and their own tone mm-hmm. or, or like a singing bowl. Yep. Like every singing bowl is tuned to a certain level that hits certain chakra frequencies. It literally is calibrating so that you are not only synchronizing with the person, but you're also helping to bring in a more harmonic vibration. Mm. They could be very agitated, for example. Right or in a lot of deep pain. So it's bringing them to... Bringing the sound. Certain, yeah. Yes, yes, yes. So that it, the way that I would describe it, it would be like a lullaby. You know how we do with babies. You know when to sing the sort of upbeat lullaby. <laughs> And you know when to sing the nice, slow, please. Please go to sleep. Go to sleep. <laughs> Lullaby. Yes. yes. Yeah. I, I, that's the best example that I could give that might resonate with people. <laughs> How did you come about this 
knowledge of music and um, the way that you're tending to the dying with sound. Um, Have you, are you a musician or is that something that came with your ministry? Well, I am musically inclined. Um, I do write music and I'm a lyricist. My ex-wife and I started the church together and she and I wrote a lot of music together. She was over the music ministry and um, the sacred passage ministry, which was the combination between the music and my practitioners, my, my lay minister. But I would probably credit someone else on my staff, Valerie Hayes, for being the one to really teach me the most about this. She was the person who was head of our ministry of prayer and head of the sacred passages who helped to train a lot of us on this. She helped me get to the point of conscious recognition. A lot of it I had been intuiting Mm. myself, but what she helped me grasp was the musicality of it all and not just the message. Like with my mom, it was the message of the music as well the hymns, their stories, yes, you know, what it was that they were saying, that the lyrics were really important. Whereas the lyrics were very, very minimal in most of these songs. Mm-hmm. Very, very minimal. And it was more the harmonies mm. and the melodies that were the activating agent. There's ritual in music too, don't you think? When your oh, yeah. when oh, your yeah, mother yeah. would hear a familiar hymn, that would take her back, you know, years, maybe generations. Oh, there's no question. What are some concrete tips or advice you would give someone who's caring for the dying? Given your story about all the drama that can be around that person, with yes. family and everything. Um, there are a few. Uh, one, I would say, be sure to take care of yourself. It's like put your own mask on first. Yeah, great advice. So make sure that you're eating and sleeping and getting some breaks, getting some air, laughing, still having some fun, because it can be a very, very grueling process. Two, don't make it about you. Be present with that person and don't put all of your grief. You have the rest of your life to grieve. But in that moment, it's about them. Third, if they want to talk about it, let them talk about it. It is not morbid. The, oh, no, don't, don't say that. You know, don't, don't talk about that. You know, mama, you got to be here forever with it. No, just Listen, just be present. Think about it. This is a once in a lifetime, at least once in an incarnation experience. You don't know what they're going through. Don't make them have to go through it alone. Right. Be very, very present with it. And the last thing that I would say is whatever unfinished business you have in your heart, find a way for, to clean it up without dumping on them. 
Mm. So that you don't get stuck with a whole bunch of emotions. And last but not least, celebrate the mystery of this. This is the cycles of life. Whatever anger or frustration or disappointment, we're all going to go sometime. Illness, injury, we're all out of here at some time. So it's no failure to die. We may not like all the circumstances and the conditions, but when it's your time, it's your time. And, and don't make people feel bad because it's their time. You're talking about acceptance. Exactly. Reading about grief would help. Yeah. Studying it and learning the different stages of grief and how to manage yourself through those. But those are my, my best tips. I think what probably catches people most off guard is the stage of anger when someone is transitioning, that that's part of those stages of grief. But it's one part. It's not the whole transition. But I think sometimes, especially with dementia, anger comes up. It's hard on the family members to to sit with that and be okay with that. And what you're saying is just listen. It's not, you know, it's not personal. Right. And any party can be angry. True. The one passing away? gets angry sometimes. The people who are caring for them can get angry. The sense of frustration and helplessness and anger is just a part of grief. It's just a stage of grief. Yeah. So just be with it, all of it, without any judgment. All of it. Right. So you use the word eternality. Yes. What does it mean to you? Eternality is the ongoingness of something where it does not stop. It goes on and on. And I do believe with all of my heart that we are incarnations, carne flesh form, that there is something that's in the flesh form. You can call it a soul, you can call it a spirit, you can call it whatever you want to call it. I don't care. But whatever that thing is, it is transcendent of and independent of the body. So that when the body decays and the body goes, that life force essence doesn't go with it. It continues on. And I believe that with all of my heart. If you've ever been there, at that very last breath, it is amazing how you can actually feel sometimes. It feels like a, like, a, a, like a gust of wind or something just blew through the room. And then when you look at the body, you realize at that moment, that's just a body and they're not in that anymore. You are so clear. Mm -hmm. You may not know where they are, but you know they're not there. <laughs> I love the distinction of that, that there's something other than the body. And for those of us who have felt that whoosh, it's very, it's very real. It's very visceral. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh yeah. You're, you're sad and you're crying. And then all of a sudden, like, whoa, 
Yeah, and there's a different kind of crying with grief. It's like these large tears that kind of leap out of your eyes. I've never felt that before. My mother died. Yeah, and there's a wailing kind of cry that can happen that's really deep, deep down in the chest. I always know, particularly in a hospital, if somebody's just passed, like when I hear that particular sound. So just to jump back for a second to eternality, you connect that idea with cultural and social systems. Mm -hmm. Is that where your activism comes in? Well, I really do believe that the soul's essence of ours is timeless, and I don't think it has a sociodemographic profile. Mm. I don't think it has a gender or a race or an age or a religion or national, like any of that stuff. <laughs> I think the bodies that we incarnate, our little personalities sort of have those things. But that this soul essence is equal. I don't think there's any hierarchy. I don't think one is any more important than the other. Um, when we take on these incarnations, we get into the false belief that it's something other than that. That some people are valued more than other people or certain people are just meant for this kind of life, you know, or that kind of life. Uh, and I just believe that contradicts the fundamental harmony of life. So I'm really all about each person being able to optimize their maximum potential, regardless of what their station in life may be or whatever kind of body they're inhabiting. So what does a peaceful exit mean to you? A peaceful exit to me is when uh, it has a couple of criteria for me. One is an acceptance where a person's not angry about the fact that they're making the transition. They're not, you know, trying to turn back the hands. They're not trying to make it anything other than what it is. Okay, that's one. The other part is when they have a sense of resolve. If there are people that they need to make amends with or hear from, unfinished business is what I will call it, where they take the time to handle that unfinished business on this plane. And the third piece of it is when they have some kind of reconciled idea about what's next. They may not have to understand it all, but they're willing to go on that journey. So do you feel like you meet those three criteria? You know, I honestly do believe that, yeah, I have really, particularly the past five to 10 years, been spending the time cleaning it up. The stuff on this level, you know, for sure. And I truly believe that when it's your time, it's, it's your time. And there's not a bunch of sense of arguing about that. 
scared you're going to lose anyway. Not going to fight it. (laughs) And I feel resolved with what my perception is of what's next. Thank you. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you as well. Thank you for listening to Peaceful Exit. You can learn more about this podcast and my online course at my website, peacefulexit.net. If you enjoyed this episode, please let us know. You can rate and review this show on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. This episode was produced by Large Media. You can find them at larjmedia.com. Special thanks to Ricardo Russell for the original music throughout this podcast. More of his music can be found on Bandcamp. As always, thanks for listening. I'm Sarah Kavanaugh, and this is Peaceful Exit.